This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, welcome back. You know, today we're going to talk about consent decrees, and the Department of Justice is juggling a few consent decrees right now. They're going on across America, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Louisville, Kentucky, Oakland, California, New Orleans, Louisiana, Chicago, Illinois. What exactly is a consent decree and how does it impact line officers or even the agency in their ability to recruit uh, candidates for police officers in those agencies? And how can your agency be affected by a consent decree? Well, we've got a great guest today. He's Bob Scales, founding partner and CEO of Police Strategies, LLC. Police Strategies uses data science and technology to help law enforcement agencies implement effective policies, training programs, and accountability systems. The company's police force analysis system provides law enforcement with in-depth reviews of force incidents, helping agencies identify and address high-risk conduct and compare use of force practices across multiple agencies. Bob has partnered with several universities to analyze the data collected by his data systems and has published several peer-reviewed academic journal articles on use of force practices. Previously, Scales served as deputy prosecuting attorney in King County, Washington, a special assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Washington, and assistant director of public safety for the city of Seattle, the Director of Government Affairs for the Seattle City Attorney and the Compliance Coordinator for the Seattle Police Department. Welcome to Policing Matters, Bob Scales. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so the introduction shows the breadth of your experience and what you're doing today to help law enforcement agencies um, create a better environment for policing uh, in those agencies. Uh, I've been tracking you on LinkedIn and your articles. They're really informative. And uh, uh, although you can talk extensively about, you know, systems and use of force and, and all these other uh, arenas that we're dealing with constantly in law enforcement, today I want to talk about consent decrees. And you caught my attention with the deep dive into consent decrees and police reforms. It may not seem to be a concern for line officers, but they really have significant impact on what they eventually decide and their impact on department policies. Why would the DOJ step in to impose a consent decree in the first place? Yeah, well, my experience, uh, firsthand experience with DOJ was when they came into Seattle in 2011 and launched a pattern of practice investigation. And that's uh, done by the Civil Rights Division at DOJ. And what they, th there's no rhyme or reason to how they select agencies to do a pattern of practice, but um, I can guess that, you know, Seattle had some very high profile use of force incidents. Um, one involved a, 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 an officer involved shooting death. Um, and, and then there was a lot of community concern and from the ACLU and the NAACP. 
And, and so they launched this uh, pattern of practice investigation and I was uh, in the city attorney's office. And so I was basically responsible for representing the city during this investigation. And so uh, we had to give them, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of records that they requested. And they spent um, and they interviewed, they had free reign to interview anyone they wanted to in the department. And um, after about um, nine months, uh, of not really hearing or interacting with them at all, other than giving them the information they wanted. Uh, they invited the mayor and the police chief and command staff to a late night meeting in December in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they said uh, the next morning, um, uh, Tom Perez, who was head of the Civil Rights Division, is going to be in town and we're going to do a press conference and announce that you have a, a pattern or practice of uh, unconstitutional use of force. And we said, whoa, 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 <laughs> what, what's going on here? Uh, and and um, and they 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 basically just sandbagged us and 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 we were just totally unprepared. And we said, well, let's let's talk about this. You know, what what evidence, what data do you have, you know, that we have a problem? And they said, well, we're not going to show you anything, you know, and and but we're going to say that 20 percent of your use of force was unconstitutional. And we said, well, that's that's not possible. Uh, you know, we would know we review all of our uses of force. We would know if 20 percent were unconstitutional. And we said, show us the cases. No, we won't show you any cases. Um, it's like, well, what? And, and you just have to wait for our findings letter. So, so they the next morning they did their press conference. They said twenty percent of our use of force was unconstitutional, and they said the only remedy is a consent decree. And so then that began a a eight month process of negotiating with DOJ about the consent decree. And our our position, the city's position, was. You don't need to do a consent decree. We will voluntarily implement any reform you want us to do. We will spend whatever money you want us to spend, but we don't want an expensive monitor. We don't want a federal judge. We don't want all the bureaucracy involved. We just want to, want to do it. No, no, no. The DOJ said, no, we have to force you to do it. The reforms won't work unless we force you to do it. So the politically, it was very difficult for the mayor and the police chief to to not sign the consent decree. So that's a, a, eventually what happened, even though there was no factual basis for it or they hadn't provided any. And the department is still under under a DOJ consent decree, you know, more than a decade later and is still having problems and has spent more than a hundred million dollars. And so I think the you, you know you sort of asked a, a simple question, which is like what what does this do? And I think I think the 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 Seattle PD, and I think most agencies that come under a consent decree are are worse when they get out of it than when they went into it. There, there is really no tangible benefit um, to a department or to a community or for public safety in having the DOJ come in and essentially, you know, force all of these reforms uh, on a department that is willing to reform but it's the it's the bureaucracy and it's the the financial burden that's placed on a city to to do all of this that really harms the 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 entire system. Yeah, it makes you wonder who is the winner uh, when this thing uh, all comes 
to fruition. Once the city picks the, or, or once the federal judge is appointed, once there's an auditor monitor, if there's a, a consultant group who oversees the process, um, we've seen some de decrees last 20 years or more. I think Oakland's is still over 20 years and not resolved. Uh, the same um, consultant is being paid um, you know, upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to oversee these uh, glaciers. Millions, millions of dollars. Millions I don't know, of I don't dollars. know a monitor that's less than a million. A million a year is the going rate. Wow. Okay. Are consultants incentivized to keep the process slow? I mean, that sounds counterintuitive. I mean, the process seems counterintuitive. Here's the federal government saying something is very wrong. We want it fixed. And then 20 years later, several administrations later, the process continues. Is there a better way to implement change in an organization? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and there actually are winners out of consent decrees. So, so obviously the consultants who are the monitors are winners. They're big winners. And they have no incentive to end the consent decree because the longer it goes on, all they have to do is monitor, right? They don't have to do, actually do any work. All they do is write reports. So for a million dollars a year, it's a, it's a great gig if you can get it. The other winner are the attorneys in the civil rights division. So, so this is a political stepping stone for them. Um, and so Tom Perez, uh, who was head of the civil rights division, you know, back in 2012, uh, he went around the country announcing consent decrees. And then he was appointed to be labor secretary. And then he was head of the DNC. Um, the, the, the next head of the, of the um, civil rights division, Vanita Gupta, is now second or third in command of DOJ. So, so the attorneys that are involved, the DOJ attorneys that are involved, stand to gain a lot in their careers from being involved in these consent decrees. There are no other other winners, um, and so so what happens is is that you you um, uh, you basically disincentivize um, officers and you disincentivize. Um, 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 uh, uh, local policing practices with a consent decree because you're you're trying to under a consent decree you're trying to stay out of trouble mm. right you're trying to avoid complaints you're trying to avoid having to use force and 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 you're trying to avoid lawsuits you're trying to avoid media scrutiny and so the way to to avoid all of that is is to disengage and to be less proactive and 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 to make fewer stops, fewer arrests. Um, some people would say that's a good thing, but generally public safety will suffer um, the less the police are engaged with their local communities. And so you see this retreating under a consent decree um, and just waiting it out. You know, we'll go back to, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, our normal practices once the DOJ and the monitor are gone, and we don't have to worry about being, you know, criticized or prosecuted for 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 uh, uh, conduct that they don't like. Um, and um, so I, I, I'm sorry, I really don't have anything positive to say about consent decrees based on my own experience and then also based on, you know, what's happening in places like New Orleans, where where you have the mayor and the attorney general and even their civil uh, their their civilian police oversight person all desperately trying to get out of the consent decree because it's harming the city it's harming the department and there is no benefit if the DOJ cannot 
successfully reform a department in less than five years, then they're not going to do it in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. It's a completely arbitrary cutoff as to when they say there's compliance. Yeah, I mean, arbitrary is a, a good word to use, especially when you, you look at these consent decrees side by side and, and see the movement over the years and, and the very little movement. Usually there's a racial disparity issue, whether it's use of force or um, in vehicle stops, things like that. Is data collection and analysis uniform across the country? Are, is the DOJ coming out with a list of recommendations that they put out to all 18,000 law enforcement agencies that say, hey, look, this is the way we want you to collect the data? Or is it different for every city they, they audit? Yeah, data data is a big, data is the solution to the problem, but there is no data. And, and so we do not have any evidence-based best practices for police uses of force because there is no data. And you can't have an evidence-based best practice if you have no data. And when DOJ came into Seattle, um, they, they said, well, we need to redo all of your policies. And we said, well, okay, show us, show us the model. We'll implement whatever model policies you want us to implement. And they said, well, there aren't any model policies and we have to tailor make this for your department. And so Seattle went from a, a 12 page use of force policy to a 74 page use of force policy that encompassed everything DOJ could possibly want, you know, to talk about and confused officers and so forth. So without data, um, you 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 cannot improve. You cannot you 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 you're just you're just you're just randomly doing things unless you're collecting the data and evaluating what you're doing to see if it's effective or not. And and DOJ does not like data. They do not want data. Um, they want everything to be subjective so that they can say and the monitor can say you're in compliance or you're not in compliance. Um, and even the, the, the federal government's attempts to collect data have been a colossal failure. So the, the, the FBI, um, uh, uh, under, under Director Comey, was going to, to uh, create a system to collect um, national data on deadly force and serious bodily injury. And that program's a complete failure, even though they've collected data on about 60% of agencies, they're refusing to release any of that data to the public. They've released like four variables at very high level and stuff. So they're sitting on this mountain of data, even though they don't have all the agencies, but they're refusing to release it. And, and that means that you can't do any research. Um, you, you, you don't, uh, there's no way to compare agencies with each other. So there's this, there's this, there's this tendency in the federal government to, to shy away from data or information because it tends to not support what they're doing. Oh boy. <laughs> so we know the data is an issue. We know that when the consent decree comes, it's a huge financial burden on cities that probably can't take on the financial, the added financial obligation. What have you seen as far as impact on recruitment, retention, and overall uh, morale in an agency? Yeah, well, one thing that's important for cities like right now we have louisville minneapolis and phoenix that are all under investigation now by the civil rights division for pattern of practice and i have no doubt that in each of those cities the doj will find a pattern of practice and they will insist that the cities enter into a consent decree so it's it's extremely important before you sign on the dotted line and what 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 you're actually doing 
And so when, when, when a mayor or police chief signs a consent decree, they are handing over control of their department and, and, and local public safety to the federal government, the federal judge, and the independent monitor. They no longer have any control over or management over their department. They, they, they work at the behest of, of DOJ and, and those that they hire to oversee the department. And so that means that, that your, your officers are essentially reporting to the monitor. I mean, the monitor would, would be in command, in Seattle would be in command staff meetings, would be at use of force review boards, and everybody would be deferring to the monitor. Whatever the monitor wanted, the monitor got. The monitor wanted a new $25 million data analytics platform, the department would spend that money on that. If the department or the monitor wanted um, crisis intervention training, you could put all the officers through crisis intervention training. So, so that and and you have this rotation of command staff, right? Because you're you're just it's it's it, it depends on who the DOJ wants and who the monitor wants to be leading the department. They will they will decide what your management team looks like, um, and 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 they will also decide the budget for the department. You, you have to do what the DOJ tells you. So if it costs $100 million, you spend $100 million. There's, there's, no, there's no question. So what that tends to do is to demoralize everyone in the department. Um, and, and because you're, you're, you're no longer, you don't have a traditional chain of command. Um, you're, you're, always you're always being questioned and scrutinized about what you're doing. And so you may get conflicting messages from your supervisors and then what the DOJ wants and so forth. And ultimately, you know, what suffers is, is public safety because officers disengage, mm -hmm. um, they're, 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 um, uh, they, they retire early. Uh, the morale's really low. They go to other departments um, where where they feel that they have better working conditions. Um, and in places like Seattle that have been under consent decree for ten years, what's what's really been interesting is that the some of the strongest proponents in the community for the consent decree are now some of the biggest critics of the DOJ because they've realized that DOJ does not care about the community. DOJ does not care about public safety. Um, they only care about getting the department to do what they want them to do so that they can claim credit for it. Um, and so, so, for example, in Seattle, we created as part of the consent decree a community police commission um, made up of, it's, it's gotten very large, but made up of, of community members appointed by the mayor and the city council. Uh, and, and their role is to advise on the consent decree process. But they are completely ignored and shoved aside by the monitoring team and and DOJ. They don't care what they think. They're just, they're just window dressing, and and so once the community police commission figured that out, they they either re, you know members resigned or they started openly criticizing the process. But again, DOJ doesn't care. They're not they're not their constituents. They're not they're not who they're trying to work for, um, and and so. It, uh, <laughs> I wish I had some, some, even a glimmer of good news, but, uh, uh, it, it, again, I, I, I see the same thing happening. The same pattern is happening over and over again in all these cities, like, like Portland and Seattle and Baltimore and New Orleans and Albuquerque that have been under consent decrees for years, years and years. They're all in exactly the same position where there's no end in sight and their departments are going downhill 
um, public safety is is you know crime is going up and that there's no way out. I mean, I mean you're stuck. Yeah, and it's it's often a an aspect of the impact on day to day policing that we don't consider. I mean, we talk about COVID and we talk about George Floyd and some other incidents that have um, contributed to. Uh, low officer morale, low self-initiated activity and things like that. But when it comes to use of force, I mean, we're talking, you know, decades before COVID and and George Floyd. And I want to touch on that in a moment. But first, I'd like to take a second and thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about utility and its technology solutions, visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. And we're back speaking with Bob Scales, CEO and founding partner at Police Strategies, LLC. Bob, police use of force is also one of the issues usually seen in a consent decree. Tell us about the data collection and analysis there. Is it any better when we talk about force? I mean, there there seems to be, you know, it's it's more tangible. Most agencies have a use of force uh, reporting system. Um, is suspect behaviors ever uh, looked at when we talk about things like use of force incidents examined to the point where the impact of the offender is also measured or is it is it solely on the behavior of police officers yeah there obviously in the, in the last you know a uh, few years um, use of force data has become much more uh, important and relevant um, for both law enforcement agencies and the public um, and you have some states like California and New Jersey and Connecticut um, that have started statewide data collection programs. Um, one of the challenges is that there are there are no standards. Um, so every every data collection program, every department collects data in a different way. Um, and so that means that there's no way to compare agencies with each other. There's no way to come up with any kind of 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 again evidence-based best practices because all the data is different. So it's like, it's like apples and oranges. And one of the things that, that you mentioned that, that, that is generally not collected is subject behavior. So generally a use of force um, reporting system will say, okay, did you use force? Yes or no. Did you use your taser? Did you injure the person? Um, you, you know, what was the crime charged, et cetera. But there's, there's very little data that's collected on the subject behavior. And anyone who knows anything about use of force is that you can't use force just because you want to. There has to be a reason. It has to be justified under the, the at least the Graham v. Connor standards. So there has to be, you, know, you, you have to look at the, the, the type of crime involved. You have to look at, at whether the suspect is threatening the officers or others. You have to look at the level of resistance. You have to look at whether the suspect fled. And very few data collection programs look at these elements that explain why the officer used force. And unless you look at the subject behavior, then you can't understand the officer behavior. And so you have to look at both in order to determine whether or not the, the force was either justified or excessive. Um, 
And so just the raw numbers of uses of force don't really tell you much. Um, and also you have to look at it in the context of what the officer's assignment was. So um, all, all too often, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of early warning systems or early intervention systems because I think that they, they, they sort of like consent decrees where they do more harm than good. Um, and every early intervention system that's out there will flag officers um, for additional scrutiny and review based on the number of uses of force they have. So they'll pick some arbitrary trigger, say three uses of force in six months. So every officer that has three uses of force in six months will be flagged by the early intervention system, and then it has to be reviewed by their supervisor, whatever. And in almost all cases, there's no problem because the, the, the number of uses of force is is not a function of of an officer's you know potential misconduct it's a function of their assignment so if you're if you're a patrol officer and you're making you know hundreds of arrests a year you're going to have more uses of force than a detective who's sitting behind a desk who's makes 10 use 10 arrests a year and and so it's not the overall number of uses of force it's like what percentage of your arrests result in a use of force um, but all too often we just look at, oh, how many, oh, you have more use of force than everybody else, therefore there must be something wrong with you. And that, again, provides early intervention systems provide a disincentive for officers to be proactive, because the more proactive they are, the more out there they're investigating crimes that they, they, they come across or investigating suspicious circumstances, the more likely it is that they may end up having to make an arrest and use force, or they may get a complaint. Um, and then it'll, they'll look bad in the early warning system. So officers tend to tend to disengage um, when they're under that kind of scrutiny. Also, I just wanted to point out that, you know, the the what I'm not saying is that is that you know um, police department should operate with no oversight whatsoever, and that they should just be able to do whatever officers should be able to do whatever they want to do. But the, the most agencies, particularly larger agencies, will have a pretty robust internal affairs system and, and complaint review process. And many of these agencies, like Seattle, had three layers of civilian oversight. Um, and, and now I think they might have four. Um, and so if you are, if you have a system where you already have a, a, a good degree of scrutiny over officers' behavior and you actually hold officers accountable for their misconduct, then there's absolutely no need for DOJ intervention and supervision over the department. If you don't have that, if you're just a renegade department where your officers go out and violate people's rights all the time, then yes, there, there, that, that is a situation where uh, DOJ oversight might, may provide some, some benefit because the department's not able to essentially police itself. Uh, but, but the departments that DOJ goes after already have these oversight structures in place. I mean, Minneapolis is a perfect example. Um, the, the officers involved in the death of George Floyd were not only uh, uh, disciplined, you know, administratively, they were held, you know, criminally responsible um, and without any DOJ supervision. So, so, so if officers are being held accountable for their misconduct, why does the DOJ need to come in and, and, and make sure everything's okay? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear everything you just said. The, the, I disagree a little bit on the point of the early intervention systems in that I think at the, at the minimum, it keeps 
your immediate supervisors informed of your activity, right? Whether good or bad. And, and in San Francisco, where I worked for you know over 30 years, I thought we had a pretty good early intervention system that gave the sergeant and then the lieutenants the ability to review the officer's um, history over six months or a year uh, and their use of force to see if there was a, a pattern of uh, misconduct or maybe needed some attention to training or something like that. So uh, it gave the discretion to the supervisors the ability to do a dive into that uh, file to see if it was um, uh, bad, bad uh, practices, uh, poor training, or what have you. And then it brings it brings to me to mind another thing you said was that you know civilian oversight four layers geez of civilian oversight. Um, to me, it it confirms that at some point we need sworn. Um, law enforcement people to uh, at least monitor these reviews uh, to be the arbiter or jump in and, and maybe demystify some of the things that the civilian oversight doesn't understand when it comes to the nuances of use of force and things like that. Um, yeah, civilian, the, yeah, civilian versus sworn. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to I was going to touch on your early intervention system comment as well, because I, I do think that there are aspects of early intervention systems that are good. So it's obviously good to to monitor things like, you know, are officers getting into accidents more often in their patrol cars? Or are they coming late to work? Or did they not attend training they were supposed to attend? Or are they getting uh, more sustained complaints than their peers and that kind of thing? So there's certainly aspects of early intervention systems that I think are, are beneficial for uh, management supervisors to know. What I was specifically talking about was the, the, the use of force in an early intervention system. Because if you are, flagging officers based on their frequency of force, which is what every early intervention system does, then essentially you're saying to officers, um, we don't really want you to use use of force, because if you do use force too much, then you're going to be flagged by the system. And nobody wants to be flagged by the early intervention system. So so whereas what we found in our, in our data and our research is that officers that use force more frequently actually use force more appropriately. And, and so they use force when it's only when it's justified and they don't use excessive force, whereas officers who rarely use force that would not be flagged by the early intervention system, they tend to have more problems. And we think it's a function of experience. And mm -hmm. so if you've never done an armbar takedown before, or if you've never used your taser before, the first time you use it in the field, you may not do it as well as somebody who's done it many times before. So, so specifically for use of force, I think that early intervention systems are counterproductive, but definitely there are other aspects of early intervention systems that I think are beneficial. Um, your other question was the, the civilian oversight or? Yeah, sworn versus civilian review. Yeah, so in, in Seattle, for example, we had the Office of Professional Accountability, um, which was the, the main sort of internal affairs uh, 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 operation. And then we had the OPA Review Board, and then we had a civilian auditor, and now they have an inspector general. Um, but the OPA was actually overseen by a civilian, uh, a, a lawyer civilian, but they supervised a team of sergeants mm. uh, and a captain 
who who re actually did the internal investigation. So that was done by sworn staff, um, but the the head of the office was a civilian. Um, and so that that model, I think, is 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 pretty good. Um, uh, but the other thing about this interesting about the civilian oversight is that is that many people think that that um, if you have civilian oversight, that there will be more discipline, you know, meted out. And it's actually the opposite. Um, you, 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 and, and, and uh, I, I, I think San Francisco is a, a pretty good example where, where you, you, you actually have the, in these civilian oversight structures, you, you may have the people on the board that are actually give more deference to officers than a sworn uh, a reviewer would. So there's no evidence that that civilian oversight will lead to more accountability of of police officers. Um, I'm sure that, that that that's that's not a uniform rule, and you may have some officers that are more aggressive than others. But in general, it doesn't necessarily lead to to more discipline or more accountability of officers having a civilian oversight structure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to have somebody in there to be able to explain how some things work. And I was thinking about statistics uh, that are often misleading when they talk about officers uh, using uh, firearms against someone who was, you know, quote, unarmed. And they don't take into account the nuances where the individual, uh, you know, was grabbing the officer's gun or fighting over the gun or actually even had possession at the time they were shot by another officer or grabbed a taser or, or some other implement. So, I mean, those are nuances that if you just look at the stat sheet, you don't see the, the full picture. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. And that's why it's so important to collect data on the subject's behavior, because if you're only looking at, you know, okay, the subject was shot and killed, were they armed with a firearm or not? Uh, probably, you know, many times they, they weren't, but maybe they had, you know, uh, uh, maybe they, for example, were grabbing at the officer's gun or, or maybe they were threatening another person at the scene and the officer shot to save that other person, or maybe the officer legitimately perceived uh, the, the, you know, a, a weapon in their hand and they thought that they were facing a, a deadly threat and so they used deadly force. But I mean, the, the, the really important thing is that officers cannot lawfully, you know, shoot someone without justification. And so, so if the officer is not charged or found to be, you know, engaged in misconduct, then that means that the investigation found that the shooting was justified. Um, and so, so which, which the vast majority of officer-involved shootings are. I mean, an extremely small number of shootings are found to be uh, out of policy, and an even smaller number found or or where the officers actually prosecuted. So, so we have these sort of national databases by the Washington Post and mapping police violence that say about every year about 1,100 people are killed by police. Um, and you know, less than less than twenty are are charged with the crime of those eleven hundred, and so that means that all the other uh, incidents were found by some independent body, either the district attorney or or uh, an outside investigating agency, to have been justified. And so, so there's no way that there's no policy change or training or DOJ intervention that's going to significantly reduce the number of of Officer-involved shooting deaths, because those are those those actions are not generated by the officer; they're generated by subject behavior, 
And, and so that's where we get into this big, big disconnect over data is what does the data mean and how do we, because there's, there's this big movement now, well, how do we reduce the number of officer-involved shooting deaths? Well, the only way to do that is to change subject behavior. And and to and to and to reduce crime and and reduce you know uh, individuals threatening officers with deadly force, uh, because unless that happens, you're never going to get the the officer-involved shooting numbers down. Yeah, yeah. In, in class, we often talk about de-escalation, and de-escalation seems to have been placed squarely on the shoulders of the law enforcement officer, mm -hmm. and no consideration is given to the suspect's behavior. So. You know, we talk about these two bubbles and, you know, I think about situations where the bubbles are just, you know, running around each other because there is no consideration given that the offender will be compliant or be rational or open to reason as, as the officer is trying to maintain, you know, a, a distance and shielding. Yeah, and, I want to ask you one final question about who needs to be involved in the consent decree besides the DOJ the federal judge, the auditor monitor, the consultant oversight, who are the stakeholders that are left out of the process? Is it the community, the, the chief, uh, who else? Yeah, well, uh, that, that, that's a great question because, because what, what, what generally happens with a consent decree is everything is done behind closed doors. Um, so there is no public discussion about a consent decree. There is no discussion even with elected officials about a consent decree. And, and I, I just know about the process in Seattle, but I know in talking to other jurisdictions that it's, it's pretty much a cookie cutter approach that DOJ uses, um, which is that they will have these, these private meetings, usually with the, the mayor's office and the, and the police chief and their command staff. And, and they'll basically try to cut a deal right it's like let's let's make a deal let's 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 find a way to come to an agreement that you will sign that will basically give us everything we want and then we can say look we're we're now in charge you know we're going to we're going to fix the department and and so the, the 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 community is definitely not involved um and and they are the ones that ultimately will will pay the price for a bad consent decree because public safety and and proactive policing and 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 everything that you know people want from their police department will suffer um, as a result. So if you had if you had an open process, uh, so let's say the DOJ issues their findings letter. If you had an open, essentially negotiation process where you had elected officials, community stakeholders, um, not just the activist groups, but business groups, neighborhood groups. Um, you know, at the table to say, all right, what are the problems that we identified? Let's talk about the problems that the DOJ found, and let's present the data that we found. Let's let's explain exactly what's going on, and and then have a discussion about, well, how do we fix this? Maybe a consent decree is not the best way. Maybe the maybe the maybe the DOJ could play more of a facilitator role. And say, look, we've identified these problems. These communities have a concern. We're gonna we're gonna mediate this with with all these local groups in the department and the city, and and come up with a better solution. And maybe that will involve some level of monitoring. Maybe it won't. Um, but DOJ could play a very productive role if you have a dysfunctional um, city and department. Um, that uh, so that's the, that that's what that would be my suggestion. And then. If the department, if there is clearly a problem, 
and the department and the city refuse to to acknowledge it or take any measures to correct it then the doj can pull the hammer down and say all right you've got to do this consent decree because you're unwilling to reform yourselves i mean there is there that is what that is what essentially congress I think had in mind when they created the law allowing DO, giving DOJ the power over local law enforcement is you, you don't use that power unless you have to. And if a depart if a department in a city are willing to reform, then go for it. Um, but otherwise, you know, uh, you know, just stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. The the best army is a volunteer army. That, that's yeah, what sure, I always absolutely. <laughs> Hey, thanks for taking time. Bob Scales, CEO and founding partner at Police Strategies. I love reading your posts, uh, the information that you put out uh, in various articles. Uh, how else can our listeners find you, Bob? Sure. Um, so our website is policestrategies.com. And then my my email is bob at policestrategies.com. And, and I'm always happy to talk about or, or just bounce ideas from uh, law enforcement agencies or others that are interested in this topic. I, I do it all the time. That's why I post so much on LinkedIn. I, I can't sort of contain myself. I always have an opinion on, on this stuff. No, I see them and I read them and uh, yeah, good stuff you're, you're doing there. Hey, let's keep in touch and talk again soon. Uh, thanks for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Hey, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. I hope you found today's show interesting. Let me know what you think. Uh, suggest a topic, suggest a speaker. Drop me a line at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policing matters at police1.com. Hey, thanks for listening. Stay safe. I'm Jim Dudley. See you next time.